What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, and you can follow our social pages on Twitter and Facebook for the latest updates. Uh, Great to be with you guys uh, this week. I know I was supposed to record yesterday. I was not really feeling totally myself. I'll be clear, I'm not feeling 100% today, so it may be a little shorter uh, just in terms of the pod this week. So um, just want to get that out of the way. Um, Would like to say thank you to Ben Baptiste for coming on the uh, program last week. Come on, I guess Friday. It was a nice uh, conversation talking about the NFL playoffs. Really looking forward to guest Friday this week. Um, as that will be out on Friday, and you guys can uh, take a listen to that. So uh, we're going to get right into it today. A lot of Bruins, a lot of Celtics, a little bit of Patriots too, um, and some Red Sox. But, you know, I might try to, you know, maybe a little shorter than the typical pods. Um, just not feeling 100% right now, but wanted to give you folks some content today. Um, so Bruins, you know, obviously it's... It continues to just be awesome uh, to watch this team. I had the pleasure of uh, attending Monday afternoon's game. Um, The Bruins just uh, look like they're playing a whole other sport uh, in a complete domination of the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, And it just is so fascinating that coming into this game, the Bruins, or uh, excuse me, the Flyers had won seven out of eight. And they actually won last night as well. So this is a team that's won eight of their last ten. And the Bruins made them look silly on Monday. You know, it was almost unfair. You know, David Krejci, David Pasternak, Pavel Zaka, you know, it was like they were practicing how good they were um, in that game and just how, like, it almost is telepathic the way that the three of them play sometimes. And I think it's it just is so exciting that you thought going into this season that, okay, you're set, Krejci, Pasternak, Hall, and that's going to be your second line. They bring in Zaka, and it's like and it's like Zaka's been on the team the last three years. The way that he and Krejci played together, I mean, you saw it on that one-timer that he scored on Monday afternoon where it's just like David Krejci's making that pass, and Zaka, I mean, with all the dirty, rotten luck that he's had scoring goals this year, just put everything into that shot on an off-balance shot, somehow found the back of the net. So, you know, I think that the ability that the Bruins have to have that line and the luxury to play Taylor Hall on the third line, it's just, it's unfair, you know? And it's like, you figure that, okay, the Bruins losing Jake DeBrusque was going to be a blow, you know? And that's not going to say that it's not, but... They're, they're fine. You know, they look absolutely fine. And just the way that they're dominating everyone, it makes them look like there's really not much that can stand in the way of this team. You know, and I think that you're going to see probably in the next few weeks, looking at the amount of games the Bruins have, the amount of away games that the Bruins have, there's probably a good chance that you see some losses. You know, the, the loss of the Kraken, last week was, you know, not a very good game really at all. So, you know, I think that those games cannot be surprising. But the way that the Bruins bounce back, 
Saturday and then Monday, you know, it's just like goes to show you that this team is so good playing through adversity, you know, and I think that it just tells you that they can have a game like that where they don't play well, but then they can come back and perform incredibly well in the next two games. You know, granted, Philadelphia is not exactly the best team in the league, but they were playing their best hockey, you know? They were playing their best hockey, and, you know, playing, you know, hockey that was better than maybe what the expectation was going to be going into the season. Um, and then the Bruins, you know, obviously Saturday played a really high-intensity game against the Toronto Maple Leafs and came out the victor. Um, and so that was, you know, impressive to be able to come back from kind of a disappointing loss and play the way that they did against a team that you're probably going to be, you know, shaping up against the rest of the season. Um, and I'll just be honest, this is probably the first time seeing the Bruins play Toronto. This is probably the first time that I felt that, okay, this is a Toronto team that really could, could, could scare me. This is a team that, like, I think that if the Bruins were not playing at this rate, the Toronto Maple Leafs might be the story of the season. You know, it's just, I think for the first time in a long time, you have a legitimate group in Toronto that is doing everything it can to be better than you and is doing everything it can to prove that, okay, this is the group that's going to do it and go deep into the playoffs. And let me just tell you, the way that they played on Saturday, that's not a team I want to play in the playoffs. Just, I think, for the first time in a while, that's a team that plays with a lot of confidence. And it's crazy because Austin Matthews is not even necessarily having a good year. You know, he was putting up MVP numbers last year, and it's like he's kind of been a little bit more under the radar this year, but they are scary. And they're a team that they make some good moves at the trade deadline. This is a team that could beat you in the playoffs. And I think, you know, not to kind of get all into this, but there's definitely a karma element if the Bruins play the Leafs in the playoffs again, where, you know, you've got you've gotten this team in the first round the last three times, you know, and I don't think it would be likely that they play each other in the first round, but you meet up with them in the, in the second round. I mean, that's going to be a really hard fought series. And so I just hope that the Bruins can kind of take that into account when they're approaching the trade deadline. We'll talk about that in a moment, but you know, this is another team that I think, is really dangerous. And it's a team that kind of is like Carolina, that it's just, they're relentless and they keep coming at you. So, I think that, you know, it'd be interesting to see how this team does in the next few weeks with a lot of, um, road games and a lot of games in a short period of time so we'll take a look at that look at that in a moment but 
the Bruins did get a, give out a new contract to uh, a, a Czech player, and it was not David Pasternak. It was Pavel Zaka who uh, signed a four-year, four-point-seven miles, four four years for nineteen million, which I think comes out to four-point-seven-five million per season. Um, so I think that that was great. You know, clearly he's a guy that has performed really, really well this year. I mean, goal scoring, you can have that argument about, oh, okay, well, he kind of should be a guy that's scoring more goals. But, you know, the point, the points that he's putting up, I mean, he is set to blow out the blow out of the water his career high in points. His career high in points was last season, 36 points in 70 games. He's played 43 games this season. He has 28 points. So... He's in a position that he's going to blow that out of the water and I think, you know, be a guy that can be a stable force in this lineup for the next couple of years and I think legitimately has a chance to kind of be someone that could take over center duties when Bergeron and Krejci ultimately leave and retire. So I think the signing in and of itself is a great signing and it's not something that's going to break the bank. You know, they signed him to a $3.5 million deal in the summer after he got traded. 4.75, you know, is a pretty modest bump from that, but I think the Bruins are expecting that he's going to be a fixture in their lineup for the next couple of years, whether that's on the second line or whether that's on the first line. So really like the signing. You know, I think that it does complicate things a little bit in terms of the offseason. The Bruins clearly still needing to re-sign David Pasternak. And the team only at the moment has about, I want to say I saw somewhere where it was like 14 or $15 million in cap space. And, you know, if Pasternak's going to be making double digits, doesn't leave you with a lot to, to maneuver. So, you know, I think the Bruins will have to get creative um, in the summer, you know, and I think that this is a contract that kind of puts more of this into focus that, okay, the Bruins are going to need to sign David Pasternak, but does this price them out of re-signing someone like Connor Clifton that I think is having an excellent season? He's playing at $1 million per season, which you know there's going to be a team that's going to offer him a pretty good raise from that considering how well he's played the regular fixture that he's been in this lineup, so... You know, it's going to be challenging, um, but I think overall, really a fan of the Zaka signing because, you know, he's shown you that he's been a really good player for this team this year. And I think someone that can play a multitude of different spots, you know, first line, second line, third line, can play all spots, you know, both wings and center. So I think that that's really huge. Um, and kind of looking at going back to the Bruins schedule, how busy they're going to be over the next, you know, month and a half. And that includes um, the break for the All-Star break. But then I think included in that is the Bruins uh, bye week, so to speak. So Bruins, obviously, tonight in New York against the Islanders. They'll go to play the Rangers on Thursday. And then they'll be back home against San Jose Sunday and then 
five in a row away to Montreal, Tampa Bay, Florida, Carolina, and Toronto, and that takes you to the 1st of February. So looking at this last night, the Bruins have four home games between now and the end of February. So it's going to be a lot. You know, it's really going to be a monster stretch, and I think that they're going to need to have good starts in games like this. You know, the back-to-backs are going to be challenging. There's some good teams that you're going to be playing in there. So, you know, yeah, I think it's fair to expect that maybe they lose some games here, but I think playing all these games at the Garden have given them a lot of confidence, and I think the belief that if you can win in one place, you can win anywhere. So, going to be interesting to see. Uh, One last little Bruins thought. You know, there's been some stuff out there about potential trade targets. I know that there's something out there about Bo Horvat, the center for Vancouver, um, that he's kind of one of the big prizes of possibly the trade deadline, assuming Vancouver is going to be trading him, which they're kind of about a 500 team. Um, And so I think clearly he's a guy that the Bruins are going to be interested in. I think is a player that not only can help you now, but a guy that can help you in the future and that the Bruins could sign long-term to kind of be that next long-term center. That being said, he's having a career year in terms of scoring, and I think that if the Bruins do want to bring him in, they're going to have to sacrifice quite a bit, you know, and that's talking top prospects. That's talking first-round picks. That's talking, you know, roster players, I think. So I think it would be worth it because he helps you at the moment and will probably help you years down the road. But the question is, do you want to risk that? You know, and I think that the Bruins kind of lack of top prospects in the pipeline is kind of well known. And so the thought is, okay, do you really want to be mortgaging the future? But I think you're not necessarily doing that because you're bringing in someone that could be, you know, kind of the face of your franchise for the next couple of years. So there's definitely things that they can be weighed there. You know, I think that probably is like the big sexy move that the Bruins could make. But I think there was news yesterday that the Bruins might be interested in Luke Shen, who also is a Vancouver Canucks player, is a right shot defenseman. Guy's got good size. Believe that he was a part of the Tampa Bay cup runs or cups that they won in 2020 and 2021. So is a guy that has experience as the leader um, in hits in the NHL this year. So definitely a guy that could bring some physical, a physical, more of a physical presence along the blue line, which I think when you get into the playoffs, you do need some of those guys. So I think he could be an interesting flyer that the Bruins could bring in as kind of a seventh defenseman that can go in every so often. It was interesting because when I remembered him from the Tampa Bay Cup runs, he was a player that the when the Lightning would play, they would often have seven defensemen play instead of six, and they would have 11 forwards play instead of 12. And so he was a guy that could play some minutes here and there. And I think the Bruins could, you know, adopt some of that strategy where he plays in place of you know, a winger on the fourth line or something like that. Um, But I think he would be a good addition. 
you know, clearly Horvat would be an amazing addition as well, but I think Shen would be someone that I think would be a little bit more realistic and I think kind of fills more of a need at the immediate moment because I do think that you need a defenseman, you need another defenseman, you know, because injuries are going to pile up. You're going to go into some games against physical teams. So he's someone that they could use. Uh, Gavrikov from Columbus is also another name the Bruins could be interested in. Um, he's a left-shot defenseman, but I think is someone else that kind of brings a little bit of a physical edge. You know, John Klingberg from Anaheim was another name that I've heard. Um, you know, he's a player that I think is really outstanding offensively. He does have a previous relationship with Jim Montgomery as he was a member of the Stars um, a few years ago. So, you know, he could also be in play as well, kind of more of an offensive guy. Uh, but I do think the Bruins should be looking at another defenseman to possibly bring in. Because, you know, in the playoffs, you can never really have too many of a, too many quality defensemen. You know, and that's kind of the, the typical, you know, DNA of teams that win Stanley Cups is you have good defensemen, you have depth on the blue line, you have, you know, options of who can play with who. So that's going to be interesting to see. I think the trade deadline's not for about a month or so. I have to get official date on that, but I think, you know, you always want to be thinking of potential additions at this point in the season. So I think we're going to move on. We're going to talk a little Celtics. You know, it's been a uh, continued great time to be a Celtics fan as the uh, Celtics, you know, went through a little bit of a rough patch, but they've won seven in a row, you know, had a very busy week last week, you know, from Monday to Monday, if you include, you know, that week. In a span of seven days, Celtics had five games, won them all, and, you know, Jason Tatum and this team, they're playing like they played at the beginning of the season. You know, they have their offensive rhythm back, they're making it look easy, and I think one of the concerns I had when Jalen Brown went down was, okay, how is this team going to look with one of their stars out? And, you know, they've not missed a beat. Malcolm Brogdon has been unbelievable. Um, but I think that I've really been impressed by this team's mentality over the last couple of games. You look at this weekend, for example. You know, previously during this season, the Celtics have had issues with lesser teams. You know, even one of the games on this streak was one of those games where I kind of think they didn't take the San Antonio Spurs very seriously. But this weekend, a good example, you're playing against a high-flying Charlotte team, a team that I think plays with an edge, always seems to play you pretty well, and the Celtics were able to respond. You know, Jason Tatum, 51 points on Monday afternoon. Malcolm Brogdon had 30 points on Saturday. You know, this is a team that I think is starting to get back to playing the, the way that they were at the beginning of the season. Is consistent ball movement, guys making shots, guys being aggressive, getting to the basket, and Jason Tatum just, you know, performing like the MVP candidate that he is. And I think 
I couldn't be more impressed with the team's mentality and how they've been able to play without Jalen Brown. You know, Derek White took a little bit of a spill on Saturday night. Uh, it was a little concerning, but he came back Monday, knocked down a couple threes. He's been huge. You know, Peyton Pritchard's had the advantage of some playing time lately, which has been good to watch. And, you know, Marcus Smart continues to be the elite playmaker that not a lot of people thought that he could. And I think, you know, it just goes to show you that with enough work and, you know, the ability to be able to be open enough to be able to change the way that you play, that it can work wonders. You know, Marcus is very rarely chalking up third, chalking up threes like he used to. You know, he's a guy that's consistently getting, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 assists in a game. And that is just so huge for their offense that, you know, everyone is bought into moving the ball and doing things for each other, doing things for the team. And yeah, you can say, oh, Jason Tatum, 50 points is selfish or whatever you want to hear or whatever you think you're going to hear from Boston Sports Radio all week, you know, they're just playing great team basketball, they're playing great offensive basketball where they're moving the ball, creating shots for other guys and doing all the things that I think we all, we always knew that this group was capable of. Um, and I just think, you know, I, I don't know, you can have your own opinion about Jason, you know, making all those threes at the end of the game trying to get to 50 points, and you can tell me that it's selfish, but I think this is a team that really enjoys being around each other and enjoys making plays for each other and seeing other, seeing teammates, you know, do well. It's a novel concept, right? So I think it's just been fun to watch them again as they've won seven straight, you know, got a really huge matchup. Uh, with the Warriors tomorrow night, which we'll talk about. But, you know, Brogdon's been excellent. Uh, Robert Williams really starting to look like his old self again, you know, which is awesome. I think has been more of a, an effect offensively than defensively maybe, which, you know, I think that when we think about him, we think about, oh, the elite rim protector, the elite, you know, defender that can affect shots at the rim, but he's affecting shots at the rim in the offensive end too. You know, that teams are always nervous to, you know, get too close to a driving player driving for a layup because they know in the back of their head, oh, they could throw it up to Rob Williams and he can throw it down. So, you know, it opens up lanes for Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Brogdon when they're driving to the basket and you know, when defenders get too close, they'll lob it up to Rob. So, you know, it's really a pick your poison type of thing. And the Celtics, I think, are being aggressive in their mindset that they are taking it, taking charge and taking the ball to the basket, you know, instead of falling into the trap of shooting too many threes. Now, I think they have games like that where it happens and shots don't fall. But when they're moving the ball and they're being aggressive offensively, it's it's a joy to watch, and it's like when they're playing like that, I don't think that there's a team in the league that can keep up with them. So it's been excellent to see both Rob and Brogdon, you know, doing well in their respective roles. I think that it's 
such a great luxury that the Celtics can start someone like Derek White and be able to bring Brogdon off the bench because there might be, you know, other situations where a different team might start Brogdon because they're down one of their stars. And I think, you know, Mal- Malcolm has done a tremendous job being comfortable in his role and I think has been one of the best six men in the league. And I think that it shows you that I think he's willing to do whatever it takes to be a good teammate and be the best asset to the team that he possibly can. So, you know, (laughs) it's just, it's funny because you watch this team play and you think about the finals last year when the Celtics went through stretches that they couldn't score, you know, and it just is like Brogdon is the absolute perfect piece to add to this team that hopefully if they're in a situation like that again, Brogdon can be the guy that can create the offense and, you know, give the team a spark because for a lot of the finals last year, especially late in the series, the Celtics had a lot of trouble, you know, finding that spark. And I think having someone like that who's constantly aggressive, constantly looking for offense, you know, it just adds a dangerous element to your offense that teams know that they can't relax. So... I think, you know, this is also a team in a season that's sort of approaching the trade deadline. So it's always, you know, important to talk about different guys. You know, there have been some names that I've seen out there. Uh, Jakob Poyle for the uh, Spurs is a name that's been floated around very recently. Uh, Celtics are rumored to be interested in him, but I think kind of not sure how he would fit into the team. I think from a money perspective, he is a free agent at the end of the season um, and is looking to make upwards of $20 million a season, which I don't know how the Celtics would work that into. And I think reading some articles, I think if the Celtics are looking for someone to be that ninth or tenth guy on the team, you know, that's not really a role that Poitles, you know, used to. And I think that it kind of just wouldn't make sense for him to play you know, minimal minutes behind Rob Williams and Al Horford, you know, unless the Celtics are thinking, okay, let's look for a guy that we can, you know, rest Al in these games down the stretch and into the playoffs. So, you know, it could be an insurance policy type thing, but it's at least good that the Celtics are doing, you know, due diligence on a player just to see, you know, if they could use someone like that. You know, I think that Frontcourt depth is certainly a spot that they could look at, you know, just in terms of Al, in terms of the minutes that he's playing this season. Rob Williams with, you know, unfortunately the injury history that he has. Um, so I think that they could be having that mindset that, okay, we do want to look for another big. So you could see an addition there. Um, I think... In terms of just getting some scoring off the wing, might also help. You know, Derek Jones from the Bulls, Mike Muscala from the Thunder are a couple names that I've seen that, in theory, the Celtics could be interested in. So, uh, Jaden McDaniels, also from the uh, Hornets, was another player that I think that the Celtics could be interested in as well, someone with the ability to score the ball off the bench. So, you know, of course, 
still a ways away from the deadline, and I think the Celtics are, I think historically at least, uh, a team that does kind of operate on kind of the quieter side, where it's like you don't really hear about them being interested in a player until that player's, you know, on the team, where it's like Brad Stevens and the way that he operates like stop right in silence, where, you know, you don't really hear about a specific player until, you know, oh, they have serious interest just kind of out of the blue. So, you know, there could be some players that we don't even think about that could be, you know, targets for this team. So looking at the schedule for the rest of kind of the month, Celtics do have a three-game road trip this weekend or starting this weekend. Celtics do have a matchup with the Golden State Warriors on Thursday night, so that will be definitely a must must watch game tomorrow night at the Garden. Celtics Warriors at the Garden for the first time since uh, Game 6 of the Finals. So, should be a good game. Celtics travel to Toronto on Saturday night, and then Orlando on Monday, Miami Tuesday. So, we have a little three-game road trip and then four games at home into the month of February. So, looking forward to quite a bit of games on national TV over the next couple of weeks, TNT, a couple ABC, a couple ESPN. So look out for that. Celtics are always a joy, however, to watch on uh, NBC Sports Boston. It's always fun to listen to uh, Mike Gorman and Scal. So if you're into that, I know some people might not be into it um, because, you know, some people around here hate positivity can't imagine. I don't know. I just, yeah, I'm not going to go off on that tangent, but it's like, yikes, you would think people just hate fun and hate good things that are happening. I mean, I couldn't tell you why I was listening to 98.5 on the drive home from, from the garden on Monday afternoon, but it's like, we're, we're talking about Jason Tatum scoring 50 points, like it's a bad thing, but yeah, there I go again. Not gonna, not gonna get sucked into that. But I think we're gonna move on. Talk a little bit about the Patriots. There's some Red Sox stuff too that we'll get to. So uh, Patriot stuff. I think there's been plenty of reports today. If you've been paying attention uh, to the Patriots kind of interview process for um, offensive coordinator, this obviously coming after the. Um, press release that the Patriots put out about a week ago that they were going to enter into contract extension discussions with Gerard Mayo, and they were going to begin interviewing offensive coordinator candidates this week, which I think, you know, we'll get to that specifically in a moment, but I think that clearly these are two things that had to happen, to be perfectly honest. Did the Patriots need to put out a statement? Probably not, but you know, it is what it is, but I think it's excellent to hear that they do want Gerard Mayo back and are making an effort to keep him because they think that not only is he a great defensive coach, I think that one day he could be a really good head coach, and I think hopefully the Crafts are, are thinking about that and, you know, thinking about a possible succession plan when, you know, Bill decides to walk away, whether he retires or whatever. Um but I think that he's been a wonderful coach here in the short period of time he's been here. 
the guys in the locker room respect him, and I think that he would be a tremendous next head coach. But I think where we're standing right now, keeping him on the defensive side with Steve Belichick, it was a unit that was really, really good at times last year. You know, kind of one of the elite defenses in the NFL at times last year. So I think it's great to hear that they're making that a, a priority. You know, offensive coordinator, you kind of thought that they were going to do this, that they were going to kind of go into a process of trying to find that next person. So I think some of the news has, you know, people thinking that Bill O'Brien will be kind of the um, leader in the clubhouse, so to speak. I think there's been some reports that um, there's a higher-up member of the Patriots front office that is very... Uh, very interested in hiring um, Bill O'Brien as, you know, obviously the former uh, former offensive coordinator for a few years. When Tom Brady was here, was at Alabama the last two seasons. Contrary to popular belief, he did not interact with Mac Jones at Alabama. I know that's kind of a popular thing that people have said that, oh, you know, he's familiar with Mac Jones. He hasn't actually worked with him, hasn't actually worked with him before you know, did obviously run an Alabama offense that Mac Jones was was at a couple of years ago. So I think that there's also a report that it, people expect that O'Brien will be the choice and that it would be a an upset if he was not hired. So, you know, that's one candidate. Another candidate that I think was interviewing today was uh, Nick Cayley. Patriots tight end coach this past year. And so I think, you know, it makes sense that they'd interview, you know, kind of an in-house candidate. And uh, Keenan McCardell is also a possible name. Patriots were, uh, I believe, requested to speak with him. He was the wide receivers coach in Minnesota over the last year, had also had stops in Jacksonville, I believe, as a coach. Uh, was also obviously a former player. Uh, with the Jags and with Tampa Bay, won a Super Bowl in 2002. So, you know, that's kind of an interesting name, not a name that, you know, I had thought about, but I think it's at least interesting to, you know, throw another name out there to, you know, see if they can interview him. They might not be able to. It's kind of the request to, to interview. So I think that, you know, that's good to see. We haven't really heard about any other names that are going to interview. You know, I think Bill O'Brien is on the list that the Patriots are going to interview. Um, I think that Cliff Kingsbury was, you know, that the Patriots had, I think the report was the Patriots had done their research um, on him and possibly bringing him in to be the offensive coordinator, but I don't believe that he's on the name of candidates. I mean, he could be, but I don't know for sure. So, I think just to finish off this report, or the press release, I should say, you know, I think that a lot of people are speculating that it's, you know, Robert Kraft that wanted to put this out, and, you know, I don't know, it's some, like, nefarious thing that I think people are trying to insinuate that, you know, Kraft is saying to Bill, you need to do this, and, you know, that, that there's, like, an element of persuasion going on, which... I don't think is what happened. You know, I think that kind of based on what I understood or what I heard that, you know, Bill Belichick and Kraft met at the end of the season and, 
there wasn't exactly like a persuasion of, you know, Kraft saying, oh, you have to do this, you have to do this. And I think, you know, sure, could Kraft have been someone that said, okay, we need to put out a statement. You know, I think that that's possible. I don't really think that a statement is necessary, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, I think it's at least good that they are being proactive about stuff like this. But it's like, you don't need to necessarily be out in the open that you're being proactive. I think that's the thing that kind of like, I didn't really know how to handle that because, you know, they were going to make changes to the coaching staff anyway. So I don't know, probably a conversation for another day, but I don't know. I didn't feel like there was, you know, anything weird going on that people were trying to insinuate. And I think in situations like this, people do like to kind of fantasize about, ooh, this is what was said, you know. You know, Kraft said, you know, you're doing this or else, you know, or, or I don't know, some stuff like that where it's like, guys, it's not a movie. It's professional sports, like relax. So I don't know. I <laughs> just felt like some of the conversation around that was really strange. Um, I think that, you know, kind of getting more into the off season and kind of looking at the guys that are free agents, Patriots do, I think have a lot of decisions to make. You know, I think um, just kind of thinking about the marquee free agents, Jacoby Myers, Jonathan Jones, Damian Harris, um, I guess Isaiah Wynn, you know, but I mean, I don't think he's coming back. Nelson Aguilar is another free agent. I can't see him returning. Um, you know, Matthew Slater is another name where could possibly retire. Devin McCourty could retire, although I believe he's still under contract. So I think Wynn and Aguilar are pretty certain to not be coming back. You know, I think I kind of go either way on Jonathan Jones or Damian Harris. You know, I think other teams could be concerned about Damian's injury history, which, you know, is pretty legitimate. So I think the Patriots do have a pretty solid chance of re-signing him. I don't think that there's any chance that the Patriots let Jacoby Myers walk out the door. I really can't imagine him leaving in any scenario um, unless the Patriots decide to really kind of remake that receiver room, which they could possibly do. Um, I think especially if they're bringing in an outside offensive coordinator, perhaps that happens. But I think Jacoby has proven himself that he is a very secure, very, very consistent player and someone that has the trust of the quarterback and I think has the trust of the coaching staff. So he's a guy that I think would return, uh, assuming that that's, you know, assuming that that is what the coaching staff in the front office are thinking that, you know, he should be a guy to return. So Jonathan Jones is kind of the one that I kind of don't know because I think that there will be, I think that there will be a good market for him because he's at a position that I think there are a lot of teams that value that position very highly. And so I think he could certainly be a guy that has a market that the Patriots are ultimately 
I don't say priced out of, but priced out of in maybe they're not willing to go to a certain number. Um, I would personally love to have him back. I think the Patriots would as well. Um, but it probably is just a matter of what that market looks like. So, you know, I think he's important to keep. Um, there might be some other free agents and, you know, we might go player by player later on in the offseason. But I think in terms of the kind of like key free agents guys that were, you know, contributors for you, contributor, contributors for you this season. Those are kind of the guys that I could see returning or not returning. Um, another bit of Patriots news. Um, some members of the Patriots coaching staff will be going to the Shrine Bowl, which is a like a senior bowl type of event. Um, and so that's, you know, exciting for some of the members of the coaching staff. Patriots have been pretty busy, you know, picking guys that have played in this game. So wouldn't be surprised if the Patriots pick a couple of players from this event. Kyle Duggar, I believe, played in this game a couple of years ago, led to the Patriots drafting him. So could see something like that, you know, I think specifically for the offensive tackles, because I think that's a spot that the Patriots really do need to address, uh, whether that's in the draft or in free agency, because there are some pretty good guys that are going to be in free agency as well. Uh, Mike McGlinchey from the 49ers, Orlando Brown from Kansas City, and then some other guys from like Ohio State and Georgia. I cannot remember the players' names, but I think that's a spot that they could be looking at. You know, wide receiver, I'm certainly sure, or I'm very sure that I think if the Patriots uh, do decide to hire Bill O'Brien, DeAndre Hopkins could be certainly a name that the Patriots look at uh, to try to bring in as O'Brien coached Hopkins for a couple of years in Houston. So, a possibility there. Um, one last little note, Marcus Jones, Patriots, uh, third or fourth. I can't remember if he was a third round or fourth round. I think he was a third round, a third round pick. Marcus Jones was selected to the all pro team as a returner. So really exciting for Marcus. He was uh, really good at that this season and a player that was very exciting for a team that I think missed a lot of like explosive plays on the field. So a uh, great honor for him. Really excited about that. So, you know, no one really talking about the uh, Belichick can't draft anymore, <laughs> but uh, just a tremendous honor for Marcus and uh, the Patriots special teams, well, part of their special teams, it should say, because not all the special teams was good, but that particular area was really, really strong for the Patriots, uh, with Jones returning, obviously, the game-winning touchdown against the Jets, and then the, uh, I believe there was, oh yeah, the game that he played, um, or the offensive touchdown that he scored. Um, on Thursday Night Football against the Bills. You know, just another example of the type of play that he can make, or the types of plays that he can make. So, congrats to Marcus. We're going to move on, talk a little Red Sox. <clears throat> Obviously, big story last week. Trevor Story needing uh, elbow surgery and will likely miss 
the majority of the season. So clearly uh, pretty bad news, to be perfectly honest. You know, I just feel like these uh, this is a Red Sox team and just, a, just, I don't know, can't really seem to, to catch a break. You know, losing Bogarts, I mean, that's kind of more of the team's own doing. But, yeah, it's just uh, it's too bad. You know, unfortunately, they think he had felt some pain um, as he had begun kind of the off-season throwing program, decided that he needs, needed surgery. So, you know, really no idea what the timetable is going to be. I don't believe that he would miss all the season. Um because I think the like recovery time is like around six months. So, you know, do the math from that. That's like July. So who knows? Who knows when the timetable is going to be? Probably won't get an update about that for a couple of months. So, you know, hopefully he can come back at some point this season. But just seems like a, um, again, a continued bad start to his Red Sox career. You know, missed a lot of last season with an injury had stretches where he really wasn't very good so you know who knows um but i think clearly the red sox need to be i think a little aggressive in terms of finding a potential replacement now i'm not saying that they're going to go out and get you know a big time all-star shortstop or a player of story's caliber but i think getting someone who can at least play the position so you don't have to feel like kike hernandez has to play every game at shortstop, you know. Elvis Andrews could be a name that they could look at. Uh, Joey Wendell, his name has been floated around in trade rumors because I think the Red Sox have been, you know, interested in the trade market. So he's someone that they could look at. So I think whatever they do, they need to be a little aggressive in that. But, you know, maybe they give Andrews an invite to training camp or uh, spring training or something like that. So you know, far from decided, but, you know, pitchers and catchers do report in less than a month, so, you know, hopefully the Red Sox can kind of get on that. Um, Jorge Alfaro was added on a minor league deal the other day, caught last season for the Marlins. I'm just going to pull up his stats here, so, you know, Red Sox clearly in a position where I think they needed catching depth, you know, I think the only catchers on the roster at the moment are Reese McGuire, to, to his credit, played really well for the Red Sox after coming over in a trade last year. Um, and then, um, okay, I'm not finding his name for some reason, but uh, no, we'll get back to. Um, and then Connor Wong obviously played um, a little bit of catcher, kind of more of a athletic guy at, at the catcher position but you know I think it's 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 not the worst idea to bring in someone for catching depth um, but Alfaro is a guy that kind of don't really know much about him to be perfectly honest um, let's see last year played in San Diego now he had previously played um, in Miami, so he played for San Diego last season. He hit uh, 246, seven homers, 40 RBIs in 82 games. Kind of someone that can split catching duties, but I think, you know, not someone that's necessarily a terrible 
signing. You know, he hit 18 home runs in 2019. So, you know, to me, kind of a similar offensive player as a Sandy Leone. Um, so I'd be interested to see if he gets, you know, a spot on this team in spring training. The Red Sox did also make um, another addition today, signing outfielder Adam Duvall to a one-year $7 million deal, which I think a lot of people like. He's a guy that does have good power, um, hit 33, oh, excuse me, 38 home runs in 2021 between the Marlins and the Braves. He had only 12 home runs last year, played in 86 games. Um, with um, after having wrist surgery, but is someone that is an excellent defender, has won a gold glove, also a member of the Braves World Series team. So really like that addition, you know, gives the Red Sox the ability that they could put him in the outfield, put him in center field, and, you know, Kike Hernandez can focus on being kind of more of an infielder, whether it's a utility guy or the shortstop. Um, but I think I like this addition because it's a right-handed bat, and I think, you know, Duvall at Fenway Park, it's a pretty exciting proposition with a guy that hit 38 home runs two years ago, drove in 113 RBIs, now kind of more of a power hitter than a contact hitter as a career 230 hitter. So not really a guy that's going to hit for average, but, you know, if he can bring some of that power to your lineup, I think that that's going to be really huge. You know, if he can hit close to 25, 30 home runs, I think it would really help this offense from an offensive standpoint, which you kind of don't know what the pitching staff's going to do. So I think you're going to need to get a good amount of run support to win most games. But, you know, we'll see what else the Red Sox decide to do. But I think Duvall in center field is pretty likely, you know, with Yoshida in left and then uh, Alex Verdugo in right. So that's at least what it's shaping up to be. And then, you know, Kike Hernandez and Christian Arroyo playing those middle infield spots, but clearly still could be a lot to a lot to be decided um, between now and the beginning of uh, spring training. So I think we're going to get to talking a little bit about the NFLs. We're done with all the uh, New England teams. Revolution have started uh, preseason training. They do have a preseason game in February, so we'll obviously talk about them as the season gets closer. Um, but taking a look at the NFL, obviously some good games this past weekend. I don't think we're going to spend too much time on those games, unfortunately. Uh, probably focus more on this weekend's games um, in the divisional round. But just some, some updates here. Aaron Rodgers um, and Tom Brady mulling their futures. Um, after their season ends, Jalen Hurts is off the injury report, so he will be fully healthy as the Eagles take on the Giants in the divisional round. Um, the Chargers firing their offensive coordinator after their playoff collapse against the Jags. And uh, DeMar Hamlin has been a regular sight at the Bills uh, facility almost every day, so... That's really exciting. Hopefully he can make an appearance uh, for the Bills game as they host the Bengals on a Sunday afternoon. These games are going to be really, really good this weekend. You know, very curious 
about what that Jacksonville-Kansas City game looks like. That's the first game of the weekend, Saturday at 4.30. You know, Jacksonville, I think, is a team that's pretty much capable of anything. You know, they're a team that played probably one of the worst halves of football I've seen all season with the interceptions that Trevor Lawrence threw and just the way they seem to be out of that game. But credit to Trevor. You know, he's a guy that doesn't quit, you know, and had four interceptions. He didn't quit and leads the team to a comeback win. So, you know, if there is the if there is a tough if there is a tough place to play in the NFL these days, it's Arrowhead Stadium. So I don't know what that Jacksonville team looks like, but I wouldn't count out Trevor Lawrence. I really wouldn't. But this is a Kansas City team that I think start to finish maybe the best team in the league. You know, there have been other teams that have been really good at times. But I think they've, top to bottom, been the best team in the league. So we'll see what they can do with a week off. But I don't don't be surprised if Jacksonville makes this a game, you know, makes this interesting. But I think Mahomes in the playoffs, it's hard to uh, hard to count him out. So I do like the Chiefs, but I think Jacksonville makes it close. Uh, Giants and the Eagles, 8-15 Saturday. This could be the game of the weekend. I know a lot of people are pointing to Cincinnati and Buffalo, but this is a divisional matchup. Eagles have won both games this year. The Giants are coming in hot after winning a playoff game uh, for the first time since 2011. And I don't know. I wouldn't want to be playing Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley right now the way that they are. The way that they made it look easy last week, you know, could also have been because of the Vikings' pretty bad defense, but this is a Giants team that's coming in with a lot of swagger and coming in against a Philadelphia team that, you know, I think needed the week off, but I think, I really think this game is a toss-up. Ultimately, I think the Eagles do make enough plays to win, but I think this is a Giants team that, really, to be perfectly honest, Eric Belly would probably agree with me if I said this, but this is a team that probably shouldn't be where they are. But I think the way that they've been coached, Brian Dable has done a tremendous job with the Giants this year, and they're healthy on defense. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a team that I just, I would not want to be playing them right now, just to be perfectly honest. But I think the Eagles win Cincinnati and Buffalo. I think this is a true toss-up. I think Cincinnati wins on the road. I think both of these teams were, you know, were given a pretty good scare by a couple of lesser teams this past weekend. So I expect both these teams to be on it. But I think Cincinnati pulls it out late. I think Joe Burrow makes enough plays um, down the stretch. And I think Buffalo's turnovers come back to bite them again in this game. I think that's what's going to happen. So I think Cincinnati wins on the road. Dallas against San Francisco. This might be the toughest game to pick. And I say that because Dallas looked really, really good on, on Monday night. You know, they looked every bit the team that, you know, everyone, you know, thinks that they could possibly be a Super Bowl team. You know, and I stand by what I said on Guest Friday last week that I do think that there's any amount of possibilities that could happen with the Dallas Cowboys. You know, they could lose in the first round. They could go to the Super Bowl. They could upset the best team in the league, looks like right now at least. 
these are both teams that are playing really high efficiency offensively, you know, really like what San Francisco can do, obviously, from a talent perspective. Um, but I think it's really going to come down to the quarterbacks. Dak Prescott played really well Monday night. Brock Purdy obviously was amazing against the Seahawks, but this is just, like, really hard to pick because they're both teams that are so talented offensively and defensively. You know, Dallas I might be concerned about in a low-scoring game with Fred Maher missing four extra points on Monday night. So I think that might be why I give the edge to San Francisco, that I have more confidence in Robbie Gold right now than I do in the Dallas kicker. So I like San Francisco to win. I think it's going to be very good chance we see an overtime game or a game that comes down to one play. So I think that's going to be it for the NFL. Looking forward to the games this weekend. Bills Bengals is at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, and then Dallas and San Francisco is at 6.30. Take a look around the NBA. Take a look at some... Um, NBA notes. Uh, the Warriors visiting the White House yesterday. Um, we'll take a look at some of the games tonight on the NBA schedule. There are quite a bit. Um, then we'll take a look at the standings. The Wizards and the Knicks and the Hawks and the Mavericks play at 7.30. Hawks and Mavericks you can catch on ESPN is Trey Young and Luca, we matched up against each other as, you know, the two of them will always be connected as they were traded uh, for each other on draft night 2018. Um, and then Charlotte and Houston at 8, Cleveland at Memphis at 8 o'clock, Miami and New Orleans, and Indiana and Oklahoma City also at 8, uh, Clippers and the Jazz at 9, Minnesota and Denver at 10 o'clock on ESPN. And then Kings and Lakers at 10.30. Taking a look at these standings, the Celtics still in first place and actually comfortably so with a four-game lead on the second-place Bucks. Celtics, obviously, as we said, have won seven in a row. The Bucks in second, Sixers in third. The Nets are in fourth after they've lost three in a row. Cavaliers in fifth, and then the Knicks in sixth place in the East, and then the play-in spots, the Heat, the Pacers, the Bucks, or excuse me, Heat and Pacers, Hawks and Bulls, and then the Raptors, half game out of that final play-in spot. And then in the Western Conference, Denver atop the conference with a half game lead over Memphis, New Orleans in third, Sacramento in fourth, Dallas in fifth, Clippers in sixth, and then in the play-in spots, the Warriors, the Jazz, the Timberwolves, and the Thunder with Portland even with the Thunder and then the Suns a half game back and the Lakers are one game back so things get pretty interesting in the Eastern Conference. We're going to take a look at the NHL, take a look at uh, some notes from around the league. The uh, Canadians putting top pick or number one overall pick Slavkowski out for three months as he's on injured reserve. The Minnesota Wild giving uh, former BC Eagle Matt Oldie 
new contract, seven years worth 49 million. So good stuff there. Um, and then taking a look at the games tonight, Bruins and Islanders, 7.30, a game will be on TNT. That will also be on Nesson as well. Pittsburgh and Ottawa play at 7. Colorado and Calgary at 9.30. Dallas and San Jose at 10, also on TNT. And then Tampa Bay and Vancouver at also 10. So taking a look at the standings, Bruins are, you know, now at this point, head and shoulders above um, everyone else in the Eastern Conference and pretty much the NHL at this point. The Bruins with 72 points, 11 points clear of second place Toronto, and 15 points clear of third place Tampa Bay. In the Metropolitan, Carolina leads the Devils by one point for the Metro lead, and then the Rangers are in third, and then the wildcard teams, the Capitals and the Penguins, with the Islanders, even with the Penguins in points, and then Florida is just three points back. In the Western Conference, Dallas and Winnipeg even atop the Central, both with 59 points. Minnesota third with 54. In the Pacific, Vegas is still in first in the division, although not by much. They only have a two-point lead over Seattle and Los Angeles, 58 to 56. And then in the wildcard spots, Edmonton and Calgary with Nashville trailing by three points in Colorado and St. Louis trailing by four points. So I think that's going to do it for me this week. Went a little longer than 45 minutes as I thought, but, you know, great to be back with you folks this week. Uh, looking forward to everyone listening to Guest Friday this week. Um, and we'll probably be back with you folks next week on the pod. Hope to be back recording um, on the regular schedule, back to recording on Mondays instead of Wednesday. It's just been a weird week, you guys, but uh, great to be back with you folks, and uh, we'll talk to you next week.